0: This this morning is coming um, from the first letter of the Apostle John, so this is near the end of your Bibles for those of you still using codexes, that's what these are called, right, these are codexes, the rest of us have reverted back to scrolling on our iPads, so there's been a retroversion in reading technologies there, Um, do you ever thought about that, we have, we've gone back to scrolls now. But in any case, uh, if you're looking in your codex, I'm sorry, my, my degree is in Semitic language and text studies, so that's, that's interesting to me. But it's right before the epilogue of the book of Revelation, you have the letters of John, and our, we are reading from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. The hymn in this first passage is Jesus Christ who John is referring to. John the Apostle writes this, This is the message we have heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Jesus, his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you the reading of your word. We know, Lord, that this is your word. We know that it is your self-revelation to us. We also know, Lord, because we know ourselves, that if you do not guide us in the reading of your word, it will not benefit us. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would attend to the preaching and the hearing and the thinking about your word this morning. Dear Lord, we pray that we will be drawn to you, That we'd be drawn to the light, the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That we'd be deeply encouraged knowing what John says here, that if anyone confesses his sin, the Lord cleanses us from that sin and leads us in the path of righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would not fear the light, but because of the spirit of Christ that bears witness within our own spirits, we would be drawn to it in this reading and hearing of the word this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So let's begin with light. It's kind of the key theme of this passage. What is light? We don't think about it too much, and yet we depend on it every minute of every day. As a matter of fact, it's not really until you talk to someone who begins to lose the ability to perceive light, start to lose your sight, that we actually start to notice what it is that we have in this gift of light, most of us don't remember the first time we saw light because the reason, the reason why, being that we saw light when we were sometime in our parents, our mother's womb, looking through those translucent eyelids of our, of our, um, you know, of our small formed bodies and seeing that light refracted through the skin of the mother's womb, right? So light is something that we require, something we require to understand the world around us, something we require to project ourselves a distance. I can look to the back of the window and I don't have to be there to see what's happening there because of my ability to receive light. It's through the reception of light that we have concepts like that of visual beauty, It's not just needed for life, but for the enjoyment of life, that we can see things and say that they're beautiful, that we can see mountainsides and cloud formations. We sang this morning about the Lord coming in a storm cloud, and that's really what that description was, his lightning flashing out against his enemies. When the ancient psalmist saw the storm cloud come in, he said, that's what it's like to see Yahweh come in. He's like a thunderhead. It's because of light that we can enjoy those things. So we might think, because of our understanding and our you know, our appreciation, but a kind of our taking for grantedness of light, that we know what it is that John's talking about here in his letter. So what I would like to do first, just at the beginning of this discussion, is actually go back and check ourselves a little bit. Check our assumptions about light, and look at the teaching of Scripture and see what it is that Scriptures, the Bible itself, actually teaches us about light. So I want to start with kind of a biblical theology of light. All right. To do that, let's go all the way back to the beginning. How far do we have to get into the Bible before we run into the issue of light? (laughs) Not very far, do we? As a matter of fact, when God comes out against that world of chaos, of formlessness and void, when he he sees the ocean and it's just kind of tossing and turning and there's, there's no way that life can take place in it, what's the first thing he says we need? We need light. He doesn't flip on a light switch. He just speaks it. He speaks light. And light is the first thing that's needed to create a situation in which life might abide, might thrive. You see, we need light. He comes back later on the fourth day and he he takes that light and he now forms it into two different lights. You have the sun and you have the moon to reign over the day and the night. But he makes sure that there is always, at some time in creation, light shining, whether it's the sun or the moon. Because we need light. We need it to survive. But light's not just that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if we go read Psalm 104, and this is for those of you who are interested in poetry and you're interested in kind of the use of words to draw out wonderful images, Psalm 104 is actually a poem talking about creation. It describes creation in a different way than Genesis 1. It's in this uh, creation story that, that the Lord is coming out against the chaos like a warrior. He goes to war against the sea, and he rebukes the waves, and he sets them at the end, and he stops, and he makes the beachhead, and he says, you can go no further to so the waves. Okay, it shows that the Lord is at war with the chaos in the void of uncreation. Right? But in Psalm 104, it's interesting how the Lord is depicted. He's depicted as being clothed in light. He's garmented in it. When he puts on his clothes, they shine like the sun. So light isn't just something we need for life. Light is also, it registers the presence of God because it's how he's clothed. Now what's interesting about this presence is that it's not necessarily a good thing for the Creator. Notice, for instance, when Moses is up on Sinai and he says, um... Lord, I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, I can't show you my glory because it will kill you. But what I can do is I can have my goodness pass in front of you and you'll get to see the back of it. Okay, And then after Moses has that experience, he goes down to the bottom of the mountain, right? And remember what's going on with his face? It's shining, right? It's reflecting. He's become like this human mirror of the glory of God's goodness, or at least the backside of the glory of God's goodness. But here's how we know it's not just like a sunburn, as some commentators say, because as soon as the people see it, what do they do? They get afraid. They say, Moses, we see from this reflection of God's glory that you have been with the living God who is garmented, who is clothed in light, Why don't you stay over there? Put a bag on your head even better because we don't want to see that because it terrifies us. And this seems to be the logic of it. It's kind of the logic of why Moses couldn't see God's glory unmitigated. It's the idea that when God's glorious radiance, his light is put in our presence, it consumes us. It destroys us. It it, it judges us because he, of course, is holy and we are not. So light registers a need for human life. We can't have life without light. It also registers the presence of the Lord, but it also registers his holiness. So why is it then, as we get a benediction, Aaron is given his benediction in the Old Testament, the way he's supposed to close the worship service, and we'll close the worship service today with his benediction, why is it then that Aaron says this, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he make his face, and actually if you read the Hebrew, it says, may the light of his face be upon you, May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Why is it a blessing then for the Lord's light to be on his people? You see, it's key that he shows you his grace when he puts his light on you. Otherwise, it would consume you. So light can also, if it's placed on you, be a sign of God's favor. The logic seems to be like this. If you didn't have his favor, his light would consume you. But if his light is on you and you're not consumed, you must be receiving his favor. Okay, That's why Aaron is told to bless the people. Lord, have your light be on them, but have it be a light of grace, not a light of consumption. So light tells us how what we need to live. Light tells us that God is near and light if it's on us and does not consume us it tells us that the lord's favor is upon us Now this is an important theme in the Old Testament. When you get to the prophet Isaiah and he's talking about the exile that's about to come on the northern kingdom of Israel. And remember at the time of Isaiah's ministry, the northern kingdom is separated from the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is telling the southern kingdom, he's saying, be careful. Repent, turn away from your idolatry, turn away from your sin, lest exile come to you. And as he's preaching to them, the Assyrians are marching across the countryside into the northern kingdom, and they're about to take the northern kingdom of Israel, not the place where Isaiah is ministering, but kind of the hated northern kingdom. They felt, the south felt about the north back then, how the south of the United States felt about the north in the late 19th century, okay? They were glad that the northern kingdom was about to fall to the Assyrians, But notice something that Isaiah says. And I'm looking at a This is a well-known passage because we tend to recite it around Christmas time. This is Isaiah 9. Isaiah says this, and he's talking about the northern kingdom because he says, I'm talking about Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee. This is the northern kingdom. They're about to go into exile, and when they go into exile, it's going to be like a deep, deep darkness. They're going to be people who are walking in a gloom, why? Because the favor of the Lord has been withheld from them in exile. But then notice what he says. This is a countercultural thing for Isaiah to say to a bunch of Judahites. He says, But the people, the northern kingdom, who walked in darkness will have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That's Isaiah 9, verse 1 through 2. You see, what Isaiah is saying is, in the exile, it's going to be like the Lord's taking his light off of the northern kingdom, but don't worry, because one day the light will shine again. As a matter of fact, the people who go into darkness first, the northern kingdom, they're going to be the ones who get to see the light first. There will be a sunrise. As a matter of fact, as the Old Testament closes, this sunrise still hasn't happened. We know that the people go back to Jerusalem after uh, after the, the, the exile, but nowhere does anyone say, and now the light is shining again in Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, but when they do, the old people weep because they remember what the real temple looked like. They do covenant renewal under Ezra and Nehemiah. They read the law again and they reflect on it, but they're still intermarrying with the people around the, in the land. They're not committed in their faith. As a matter of fact, as we talked about this weekend, the Old Testament really kind of ends on Nehemiah's prayer. He says, Lord, don't forget about us. So that light has not yet shined again in the northern kingdom. And so as the curtain on the Old Testament closes, that question, that desire, where's the light, should be ringing in our ears. As the curtain on the New Testament opens, we find people like Simeon, the old man who's waiting at the temple. He doesn't know why, but the Lord just doesn't give him the gift of rest in death. He's prolonged his life so that he can see the coming of the light. And so here's Mary coming in to have the child presented to the temple, the Christ child, and Simeon sees him come in and he runs up to her. And he grabs that baby out of her arms and he lifts her up in the air and he sings a poem. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's him. He gets to die. He says, finally, (laughs) I get to die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and a glory, that's also light language, a glory for your people Israel. You see, the light is beginning to shine. The presence of God and the favor of God on the people of God is presented in the person of Jesus Christ. It's because of that when the Gospel writer Matthew sees Jesus come out of the wilderness after having victory over his temptation, over Satan. He goes where first? He doesn't go to Jerusalem. That's where we'd expect a king to go. He doesn't go and claim his Davidic throne. Where does he go first? He goes into Galilee. He goes into the northern kingdom. And Matthew, just so we don't miss it, tells us that's to fulfill Isaiah 9. Because the people who are in darkness are going to have a sunrise. They're going to get light. Jesus walks in, and in doing so, by preaching, repent, and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is effectively saying, God's presence and his favor are again on his people. And Jesus says, as John tells us over and over again, I am the light of the world. Notice he's not just saying, I'm the way of spiritual enlightenment, or, or I give insight into something that other people haven't given insight into. What he's saying when he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm bringing my restoration to Israel and the whole world. You see, I would argue that we have to understand what light is in the Bible before we understand how John is using it here. Okay, John's drawing off of that whole history of the theology of light that we just walked through as he talks about how Jesus is himself also the light for the believer. Now, we know something about John's letters and John's gospel and it's that he's writing against a certain group of false teachers. Okay. Now, we don't actually get to know who the false teachers were. They didn't write much, so we don't have any books uh, that give their side of the story. But we can kind of read through the lines in the Gospel of John and in the letters of John to, to kind of intuit, sort of in an investigative way, um, what it is that these false teachers are teaching. And it seems to be something like this. They seem to be teaching that Jesus was not really kind of holy God. Okay. Now this is what they mean by this. They think God is kind of up there. He's, he's out there. He's this separate being. Jesus was here with us. We talked to him. We saw him. Surely God can't be in this person. So Jesus, though he's great, probably isn't really God. Maybe he's some kind of you know, demigod. Okay, or some kind of great spiritual being, but a created being, something just a little under God, like a great angel. Okay? So they seem to be teaching something like that. He's not really God. But then what's interesting is that they seem to also teach kind of the opposite of it. They seem to also teach he's not also he's not really man either. I mean, Jesus is great, he's amazing. He taught things unlike anyone else had ever taught them do we really want to say that he's like us? I mean, being a, a human means that you you have body odor, right? You, you age. You, you get sick. You, know, you start to sag. You know, all these things. Do we really want to say that Jesus, the Logos, is really a human? Maybe he just looked like a human. Maybe he just had the apparition of being human. And John is saying, These errors, the idea that Jesus is not truly God and that he's not truly man, these are not just kind of small errors. This isn't just a disagreement over when you should baptize your children, maybe, or whether you use wine or grape juice at communion. He says, if you believe those things and you teach them, you are walking in darkness. Think about how he begins his gospel he addresses these issues right away. What does he say? In the beginning was the Word, the law In And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? And then what happened? The Word became flesh, okay? Just so you're not confused, He is God, and He really did become flesh. He's addressing these issues. Every time Jesus says, I am this or I am that, He's using the divine name of the Old Testament, I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones because they know what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm a great angel. He's saying, I am the very God of the Old Testament. John says, when we ignore these aspects of the gospel, we are walking in darkness. The problem with this darkness is that it tries to explain. And that's how most heresies start. They're trying to explain something that's hard to understand. And the incarnation is hard to understand. But by trying to explain it, they create lies and darkness. They end up blinding us and shrouding the truth instead of enlightening the truth. John says this, if we have fellowship with Jesus while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're just saying we have fellowship. We don't really have fellowship with him. If you live by the teaching that Jesus was not incarnate and that he is not the Son of God, even if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are living in darkness. And the only way to dispel that darkness is through shining the light of the true and good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you chase away shadows? You turn on a light. You turn on a flashlight. Let there be light. Shine the gospel truth about Christ and the darkness will dissipate and those hiding in the darkness will be exposed. You see, how do we do that? We present the true Christ. We present him as he's presented to us in the gospels. Because when Christ is present, the darkness flees. Similar to that, when those who are united with Christ, who bear the spirit of Christ are present, the darkness should also flee as well. I told the earlier group, the Sunday school, that I I was a Navy kid growing up, and one of the things about being a Navy child is that you get this wonderful gift, this privilege, of living on naval bases. And if your father stays in long enough, you'll start to get some pretty decent-sized houses on some of these naval bases. And one of the houses that we lived in was a a house in the Charleston naval base. It was a converted office building from the early 20th century. It had gargoyles on it, which as kids we all thought that was really cool. It had 20-foot high ceilings upstairs and 15-foot high ceilings downstairs. It was a really remarkable place. We had it cut down the middle. It was divided so you'd have these hallways that would just come to a roll. <laughs> it was this kind of typical military housing fair. Okay. And, Uh, But it was an old house, it was about 100 years old, it was just north, maybe 500 yards north of the Charleston naval shipyard, and it was about 200 yards off of the Cooper River, those of you who know Charleston. Um, So here we have, old house, near a shipyard, in South South Carolina low country, right by a river. So what that means, for those of you who haven't been in those kinds of scenarios before, it means that we were not the only living beings who inhabited our house. Okay? There are a lot of other creatures who we shared our house with. One of them being a very particular kind of invertebrate common to the area, uh, known euphemistically as palmetto bugs, which sounds like a line of restoration hardware furniture. Palmetto. Okay, But what does what everybody else not living in South Carolina call those bugs? Cockroaches, right. Cockroaches love the darkness. <laughs> they love the dark. As kids, when we were hungry at night, we would usually force my littlest brother to go down to the kitchen and get food because going to the kitchen meant going into a dark room and flipping on the light. Okay. And there's actually this little staircase that went down. So you were, uh, and you had to walk about five steps into the kitchen before you could get to a light switch. So what's happening is you're walking in the darkness, you know, you're imagining what the walls look like around you and the banisters. And then you flip on the light, and every time, what happens? Boom, right? they all run. You know, actually, they're so bold, they just kind of saunter off to their hole. They don't even care. The things of the darkness hate the things of the light. When you shine the gospel of Jesus Christ, the heresy those walking the, the, the darkness scatters like a palmetto bug. The best way to confront heresy is with the truth about Jesus Christ. The truth that the second person of the Trinity did not consider it something to be hoarded, as Paul says, grasped at, to stay in heaven next to the first person of the Trinity, but he humbled himself to walk with us in this life, to be the light in our world, to die on the cross, to rise on the third day, victorious over the evil triumvirate of Satan's sin death. Uh, he ascended to the Father where he sits now in his resurrected body in a place of highest privilege at the right hand of the king in the heavenly court. He is the resurrected king reigning over the world. His victory is secured. His kingdom is established. And one day he will come again to set all things to right. This is the truth of the light of the gospel. 20th century Edith Wharton said this, there's two ways of spreading light. You can either be the candle, that's the gospel, that's Jesus Christ, or you can be the mirror that reflects it. And that's how it is with God. He is the light that shines in the darkness of this world, and those who are in him are like sentient mirrors reflecting, like Moses reflecting that radiance off of their faces to the world around them. And when we do the darkness and the cockroaches scatter. There are times in life when this darkness, the darkness of this world, will seem so gloomy that it will seem as if it's overtaking us. We will feel like those exiles in Isaiah who are living in a time of darkness. As a matter of fact, there are many who talk about today as if we're entering a time of cultural exile, and that might be true. That might be true. That as Christians, we're moving into a kind of sort of disenfranchisement. But that should not lead us to spiritual malaise. Rather, it should lead us to a spirit of hope and victory that we can shine even more dramatically the light of Jesus Christ amongst the darkness in the world. So, let me suggest to you three ways John tells us here in this passage to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. The first one is this. Reflect the light. (laughs) Be the mirror that reflects the light. Don't be surprised when the darkness sets in. Don't be surprised when you see the gloominess outside. That's what darkness does. It's done it from the beginning of time. You see, in the darkness, sin and unbelief can thrive. The powerful can oppress the weak. False teachers can profess their false teaching about Jesus, God, and the universe but the light reveals it for what it is. Don't be surprised when darkness rages against the light. Christians need to remember this quality of illumination that we have just by claiming Jesus means that the darkness will rage against us. Okay, This is part of what it means to be in Christ. The darkness will resist us. Don't hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, goes the song. I love that song, too, because it's like the person singing it is trying to convince themselves, don't hide it under a bushel." No, don't do it. You want to do it, but don't. I'm going to let it shine. I think we need to be continually convincing ourselves of that need to shine the quality of illumination of the gospel that we have. You see, to be light, however, that means that we need to be present where the darkness is. You can't stand on a mountainside, far away from the darkness, kind of cupping your light against the wind. You need to be where the darkness is so that when you turn on the strobe light, you will actually expose the truth. I'll be honest with you, sometimes the darkness will come and find us. We're coming up now on a year after that. Very troubled and angry person, young man, opened fire on a prayer community, a prayer gathering in Charleston, South Carolina. He killed nine people. Two days later, as the victims and the families of the victims gathered to address Dylan Roof, who had alleged and now has been shown to have been the, the, the gunman, the murderer, they addressed him in this courtroom. And a remarkable thing happened. do you imagine this? This is two days after these people lost some of the most meaningful, close loved ones in their lives. Their testimonies were recorded and were kind of publicized the day of this, of this hearing. I want you to hear what they said. Felicia Sanders is the mother of 26-year-old Tywanza Sanders, who was one year out of college when gunned down. Felicia Sanders, the mother, says this, We welcomed you Wednesday night into our Bible study with the welcome arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. Every fiber of my body hurts, and I'll never be the same. I'll never be the same. Tywanza Sanders was my son, but Tywanza Sanders was also my hero. Tywanza was my hero, May God have mercy on you. Nadine Collier, the daughter of victim Ethel Lance, You know who Ethel Lance was, she was a 70-year-old woman who would go to the church in between gatherings like Alcoholics Anonymous, and she would clean up the church again for the next group. That's just what she did. She was retired, 70 years old. And she was in this prayer group, and she was shot and killed. Her daughter, Nadine Collier, said this to Dylan Roof, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you, and I have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You really hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. Relative of Myra Thompson, who is a vibrant member of the prayer group, the wife of Reverend Anthony Thompson, who is the vicar of Holy Trinity Church, which, by the way, for those of you who know Falls Church, you know they're in the ACNA, ACNA. This is a church in that denomination. One of the relatives of Myra Thompson said this, I would just like you to know that, to say the same thing that was just said, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ so that he can change you and change your ways so no matter what happens to you you will be okay Now what would what would cause someone to talk like this now as I say I, I didn't read this this wasn't on the church website this was in the Washington Post these testimonies this might be one of the most public declarations of a living gospel. The effect and the implications of the gospel that we've seen in recent years, maybe even in recent decades. You see, this is what shining a light in the darkness looks like. This is the lived theology of Jesus of Nazareth, the light of the world. But as these news accounts were coming out, and these testimonies, we're seeing this pure kind of profession of faith. That even in this moment, this horrific darkness, there's this Moment of light that shines we need to remember to reflect the light of the gospel even when the darkness comes to find us we also as those who are shining the light we need to be able to engage what we expose note that when the light shines there will be those who are drawn to it there will be many who will scatter but there will be others who will stand they'll be drawn to it We need to be ready to gather them. Gather them in. You see, here's the problem, is that our society also likes to expose people. Our society likes to expose people, however, unto ridicule. If you don't believe me, just go stand in the cashier line at any grocery store, right? And stop and look and see what your children are studying. Okay? All the magazines where you get to see who had the cellulite that summer. Okay? Or who who got divorced. Right? Who said something stupid or got a little bit too tipsy at a party? we love to expose people unto shame. Jesus does not expose unto shame. He exposes in order to redeem. He speaks the truth, but he does not mock. He reveals the true you, but he does not abandon you. You see, our gospel will res- reveal the human heart. Our presence will cut others to the quick, but the next words need to always be that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's got to be our next words. We can't be exposing unto shame, but exposing unto salvation. The way to engage those who have been exposed in the light of the gospel is to walk with them in humility, to teach them about repentance and faith, and to show them how the light truly is the life for all mankind. The life is the light rather is bright, but it's not harsh. That's how the glory of God in Jesus Christ works. However, in order to do this, we need to be able to turn that light around and shine it on ourselves. right? To be able to walk in that kind of humility, To be able to walk in that kind of brokenness, do we have to be honest about what the light of the gospel shines and exposes about ourselves? So first, be light. Secondly, engage with our light, the light of the gospel exposes. Thirdly, shine the light of Christ on yourself. Light is not merely outward, but it's inward. We actually need to be as impassioned about shining the light on us as Christians and as a church as we are about shining it on the culture around us. It's easy to do the latter. It's a lot harder to do the former. And I think that's one reason why we are sometimes accused or perceived as being hypocrites. Because we enjoy shining the light outside, but we have a hard time turning it around and shining it back at ourselves. I think about the pastor who, who is preaching a sermon like this, and he says, remember, every finger I point at you, there's three more pointed back at me, and then the thumb is going back to the choir. No, it doesn't really work in this situation, but still, he seems Okay. Right, we need to be willing to turn the light of the gospel back around on ourselves. As a church, we need to get our house in order. The light will expose as much about us as it does expose about the world around us. I know this terrifies some of you. Let me tell you something. One of the best things that your elders do when they gather together, and your deacons, they gathered together on, uh, two nights ago and confessed. They just confessed. And we prayed for one another. That's a really good thing. Some of you have tasted that. You know what it feels like to confess that besetting sin and to be freed of it through the liberation of repentance and faith. And some of you haven't. I want to encourage you Let the gospel of Jesus Christ draw confession from you. As the author of 1 John says, as John says there, he says, if we confess our sins, he's going to cleanse us. I pray that you will enjoy and experience that liberating power of confession. The realization that there's nothing that we have done, there's no darkness that we have nurtured, there's no penumbra of the soul, where our besetting sins hide, that Jesus has not paid for in full when he took his place on the cross. He gave himself up because we would not, if, we could not. Have no mistake, make no mistake, if I had gone to the cross, it would, have, it would have benefited the world nothing. It would have been just and deserved. But Jesus went to the cross, and his death is redemptive. That darkened sky over Golgotha when the Father turned his face away means that we might never have to experience the darkened sky again. That we can be embraced and showered in the light of God's presence and favor because Jesus Christ stands before us bearing witness to the Father that we are one of his. So be light engage what you expose and shine the light of Christ on yourself and on the world. I want to end with this. Just a brief story from the Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite trilogies. There's that scene as the Fellowship of the Rings is about to leave. They're leaving... Um, Lorian and and, and Galadriel, the elf queen, is kind of drawing them all together and she's giving them these gifts and she's blessing them and kind of giving them benedictions as they send them off. And if you remember in the book, the idea is that this whole ploy of the fellowship probably isn't going to work. right? They're probably sending them off to their doom. And she gives Frodo this small little vial of liquid that shines a light. And she says to him, May this be a light to you in the darkness when all other lights fail. As we go forward in this world, we talked about this over the weekend with your officers, there's a sense that we're stepping out into a darkness where many lights are going to fail. There's going to be friends that you have who confess Jesus who will just slowly turn away from the faith. There might even be some members of this church. Be ready for that. That happens. It happens in history. As we lose the social incentive to be a Christian, you're going to see people just kind of slowly, quietly walk away. Let's remember, our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may it be a light to us. May he, in his steadfast reign and rule over the world, be a light to us when all other lights go out. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up to you this time. We know that we are often timid and concerned and frightened about the light in the world. Sometimes, Lord, it's because we see the the darkness that's outside of us, and we're confronted with the darkness of unbelief and sin in the world around us, and it makes us, quite frankly, fear. And sometimes it's when we look in our own hearts and we see the sins that we haven't yet been freed of and we we see those places that we continually fail and the places that we try to protect and hide from everybody else in a shroud of darkness and it makes us fear. I pray, Lord, for a spirit of boldness, a spirit of courage, not because of who we are, but who we have been made in you, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, you are our King. You reign in heaven. You will come again to bring new life, new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Let us be ever drawn forward by that truth of the gospel, Lord, and let it strengthen us. I pray for everybody in this congregation that the light of Christ would shine brightly in their hearts, shine brightly in their households, and shine brightly in the the neighborhoods and the communities in the town of Leesburg in which this church ministers, Lord, I pray that Leesburg would never, ever be tempted to think that the world is just darkness because of the witness of the body of believers in this city. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.